As we come to the reading and preaching of God's word, <clears throat> excuse me, it's tough to sing and talk after that. I'm out of shape vocally. <clears throat> anyway, uh, as we come to the reading and preaching of God's word, this is a, this is an in-between Sunday for us, meaning we're in between preaching series. So if you're with us last Sunday, uh, last Sunday we concluded a six-month journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we kind of bounced around a lot within the Gospel. If you're following along, it's like, where are we in Mark uh, this week? But we covered. Uh, most of the gospel and certainly the main themes of it and it was it was a joy uh, to walk through the gospel of Mark and to see how he showed us who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and now next Sunday we're going to begin a new summer uh, a summer series on an Old Testament book the Old Testament book of Esther it's a book which if you know famously never mentions the name of God which turns out to be actually brilliant because what es what Esther is about, I can't say the word Esther. April always makes fun of me because I, I say Esther. I don't know why. I can't get it out of my head. So this is going to be an adventurous summer of me trying to say Esther. But anyway, uh, if you know anything about the book of Esther, it's about how God is present even when he seems the most absent. It's about how the people of God survive in a secular society when they have no power no protection, no prestige whatsoever. So I think it's a really important book for our time, so I can't wait to dig in next week. But this Sunday, we're in between, and it's Trinity Sunday, so I'm going to preach a standalone sermon on a Trinitarian text, a Paul's famous benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. It's certainly a familiar verse to you. This is one of the most treasured uh, verses in all of scripture has been used throughout the ages uh, to pronounce blessing upon the people of God to remind them of who they are and what they enjoy because they belong to him. This one verse, the last verse, is so rich that a 17th century Puritan named John Owen wrote an entire book on this one verse, which is what Puritans are prone to do. Uh, this book is called Communion with God, and obviously it has greatly influenced the words I will share today as I, my sermon shares the same title. Actually, I preached this text three years ago, also on Trinity Sunday, but most of you weren't there. And if you were there, you probably don't remember it, because I can't remember what I preached last week. So, uh, nonetheless, while it's influenced by that sermon from three years ago, this one will be substantially different. So, without further ado, would you stand for the reading of the scripture lesson? Second Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. And we pray that your word and your spirit would be powerfully at work even now. Lord, I, I as the preacher, I pray that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Should be seated, please. 
Uh, two weeks ago in my sermon, I mentioned, I know you guys remember the two weeks ago sermon, uh, <laughs> but I mentioned that I read a paper recently with a group of pastors that had a really provocative title. And the title of that paper is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Which is fascinating, and this paper was actually originally given as a lecture in 2016 at the Pear Marquette Lecture in Theology, just down the road in Milwaukee. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was given, uh, the, the lecture and the book uh, that inspired it uh, is by Larry Hurtado, who is a, he's a early, he's a historian of early Christianity. And in the lecture, Hurtado explores what has attracted the fascination of so many historians and sociologists throughout time, both Christian and non-Christian, which is the incredible growth and spread of Christianity in the first three centuries, at precisely a time when the environment was the least hospitable to such a spread. It's fascinating. Another sociologist named Rodney Stark, he asked it like this. How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? It's fascinating, isn't it? Some estimates say that there were around 1,000 Christians in 40 AD and in roughly 6 million by 300 AD. Like by any measurement, that is, that is remarkable under any circumstances, but especially remarkable when considering that becoming a Christian during, those, during that time was fraught with serious potential consequences, especially social consequences. You opened yourself up to things like ridicule, harassment, maybe even physical abuse and persecution. And Hurtado wanted to know why would anyone make that choice to become a Christian despite the social and the political cost associated? Why would anyone adhere to Christian beliefs and practices when it might have massive consequences for their family, for their job, for their social standing? John Owen in that book, Communion with God, he speaks of this time like this. He says, Christians in those days were poor and despised. Christian leaders were treated as the filth of the world. So to invite people to become Christians, to join in their fellowship, and to enjoy the precious things they enjoyed seemed to be the height of foolishness. Owen then imagines what one might be thinking, their thought process. What good thing will we get if we join up with these Christians? Are they inviting us to share in their troubles? Do they want us to be persecuted, reviled, and scorned, and to suffer all kinds of evil? See, in that light, in that context, why did anyone become a Christian? Why did Christianity grow so exponentially? Why, what did Christianity offer that was so much greater than the cost that came with it? I hope you're seeing why I'm talking about this. The connection, the relevance for our own day. Now, you know, if, if you know me, if you've been around this church, you know I don't do the whole culture war thing, right? I don't do the us versus them conversation that the church totally seems to get wrapped up in in our country. We are just as committed as ever to being in the world, not of the world, but for the life of the world. We are seeking the flourishing, the life of the world. But friends, I wouldn't be faithful to my job as a pastor if I didn't tell you what you're witnessing happening all around you, which is the world has changed. The world is changing. And being a faithful Christian today will carry with it significant social cost. 
It wasn't that long ago in our country when people gained social capital by going to church. <laughs> it was advantageous, actually. It added credibility to you, to your business standing or to your social standing. But it's not the world we live in anymore. In our world, you have to somewhat pay a social capital in order to go to church. You have to do so at the expense of social standing. Oh, you guys feel this, right? You feel it in your experience. Christians who find themselves increasingly at odds with the culture around them are faced with difficult decisions. We're wrestling with what to do with our faith in the public sphere. Do we just withdraw into our own private Christian ghettos? Do we hide in plain sight by blending in and getting rid of anything offensive? Or do we fight? Do we fight for our rights? Do we try to take back or restore some imagined gilded age of, of a Christian nation? The answer, by the way, in my opinion, is none of the above. We can talk about that at another time. But we have to admit, friends, if you, if you hold to historic Orthodox Christian beliefs and practices, you will run the risk of incurring social costs, of being labeled as, as narrow, or bigoted, or exclusivist, or on the wrong side of history, as they say. Tim Keller, a pastor and author in New York, he says it this way, which I think is fascinating. He says the earliest church was seen as too exclusive and a threat to the social order because it would not honor all deities. Today, Christians are again being seen as exclusive and a threat to the social order because we will not honor all identities. We feel that. We feel that tension, right? And yet, like the first three centuries, Christianity is growing today. It, it might be struggling here in the West, it might be struggling here in America, but it is growing around the world, and especially in the global South. Did you know, according to LifeWay Research, both Africa and Latin America by themselves have more Christians than all of Europe. By 2050, almost 1.3 billion Christians will live in Africa. That's billion. The number of evangelicals in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970 to 386 million in 2020, 77% of which live in the global south. Evangelicalism is predominantly a non-white movement within Christianity, globally speaking. Christianity is growing five times faster than atheism. There are fewer atheists in the world today than there were in 1970. See, same thing's happening. It's not just a question for the first three centuries, it's a question for today, and it's a question for you, personally. Why on earth would anyone become a Christian today? Why are you a Christian? What is, it, what is it that makes it worth the costs? Well, friends, I think the answer today is in our text. This one little verse that's right in front of us. In this one verse, I think there are three revolutionary truths that have transformed the ancient world and continues to turn the world upside down today. I think there are three revolutionary truths that have compelled millions upon millions and millions of people to count everything else as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. What are those three truths? Well, first, the first revolutionary truth is that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. Look at verse 14. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now what's interesting on this Trinity Sunday, in the mystery that is the Trinity, God is three and yet he is one, and therefore all the attributes listed in this verse can be applied uh, to all persons of the Trinity, to God as a whole, as one. But this is especially revealed through particular persons of the Trinity. And so what Paul says is, therefore, we see that God is grace, especially through the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the grace of God became flesh, became human, it became visible and tangible. Remember the, the prologue of John's gospel, it is so amazing. He writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. But from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The scriptures tell you that Jesus is the grace of God made known to the world. Now if you're saying, well, what is that? What is grace? What's, what's the big deal about grace? My favorite summary comes from an Episcopal priest by the name of Justin Holcomb. He summarizes it this way. Grace is mercy, not merit. It's mercy, not merit. Grace is the opposite of karma, which is all about getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. And by that, you know, grace is at the very center and the core of Christianity. So it tells you that Jesus came into the world to take upon himself what you and I deserved. Death, judgment, the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And he came to give us what we don't deserve. His perfect righteousness, earned by his perfect life. The forgiveness of all of our sins through his sacrificial death and eternal life the victorious resurrection over death itself. This is what so this is what grace is. Grace is primary. This is why Paul actually mentions it first in this Trinitarian blessing. Anytime you talk about the Trinity, you normally begin with who? The Father. But this begins with the Son because it begins with grace. It comes first because any relationship with God starts with grace. You are who you are in Christ because the true and the living God has come down to you in undeserved mercy. That's what grace is. Now, what is so revolutionary about grace? Friends, because it's so different from the way the world works. It's so different from the way other religions work. You know this. Everything else in the world runs on a meritocracy. You get what you earn where everything runs on karma, right? You, what comes around goes around. You get what you deserve. That's the way the world works, and therefore we assume that's the way Christianity works. But then here comes this notion of grace. Remember the first time you ever heard the words Ephesians from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. Because grace is revolutionary. And I've never found someone who describes how revolutionary as well as, believe it or not, Bono, <laughs> the lead singer from U2. In his 2005 book, this is what Bono says. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. 
You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. And yet, along comes, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to, to finally be my judge. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend upon my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us. And that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. Well done, Bono. Right? That's it. Grace is so revolutionary because it interrupts the consequences of your actions. Which is good news because Bono's not the only one that's done a lot of stupid stuff. I have. And you have. And that's why millions and millions of people have come to treasure Christ. Because they have found in him someone who steps in and absorbs the consequences of their actions. Because they have found where to take their guilt and their shame. John Owen says it like this, There's enough grace, mercy, and pardon in one of God's promises for the sins of millions of worlds, if they existed. Because the promise is supplied from an infinite, bottomless reservoir. What is one finite guilt before this infinite and eternal reservoir of grace? That's the first thing. The first revolutionary truth is that God is a God of grace. Secondly, the second revolutionary truth is that God is a God of love. And notice that this attribute is especially attributed to the Father. Look at verse 14 again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, assumed to be God the Father, be with you all. Now this is fascinating because this is where Larry Hurtado in that paper drills down about how revolutionary it was then and now to believe in a God of love. Like I think we sort of take it for granted now if you've been around the church that yeah of course God is a God of love. But that's not the way the world thought for a very long time. In the ancient world, there was simply no category for an all-powerful God who was also powerfully loving. None. And especially no category for one who wanted a direct relationship with human beings. If you step back into this Roman and Greek mindset and this pluralistic society, there were many gods, many deities. And there might be one who is higher than the rest, but if he is, he is so high, so transcendent, so removed from us, that he's completely inaccessible. And furthermore, he has no interest in having a loving relationship with humanity. He's the highest God, after all. In fact, ancient pagans lived in fear precisely because their gods were not loving. They were capricious or malevolent. So a relationship with those gods was merely bargaining with them, pacifying them, placating them. One commentator says, none of the multiple options in the most pluralistic of religious worlds spoke of a single God whose innermost nature was love. None of them, except for Christianity. Christianity says that God's innermost nature is love. 
his very essence, the very heart of who he is. Friends, can you imagine how revolutionary this was? Yes, there is one all-powerful God, and yet he is powerfully loving. In the midst of this broken, chaotic, and painful world, how revolutionary that you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who wants a loving relationship with you. This stands out miles above all the other views of God, both ancient and modern. We might be asking, well, how do I know? How do I know that he is a God of love, as you say? Brothers and sisters, because he has demonstrated it through his generous, self-giving sacrifice. The most famous verse in the Bible is what? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his only son. That's how you know. The one true God who made the world and so loved the world, even when it rejected him, and he demonstrated by acting within the world at enormous cost to himself so that he could at last put the world to rights, put it back together again. Christians, this is your father, if you were in Christ. And yet, if you're like me, you struggle so much to believe this. Why do we struggle so much to believe this? I think John Owen helps us understand this struggle. Listen to what he writes. Why are we afraid to have good thoughts of God? Is it too hard to think of God as good, gracious, tender, loving, and kind? How easy we find it to think of God as hard, austere, severe, unable to be pleased, and fierce, which are the very worst characteristics of men and therefore the most hated by God. How easily Satan deceives us. Was it not his purpose from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God into our hearts? Oh yes, that was it from the very beginning. Satan loves to fill our hearts with hard thoughts about God. His purpose from the very beginning is to whisper into, every, every, into the heart of every person that God does not love you. Oh, it continues, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. Brothers and sisters, this is a revolutionary truth that millions and millions of people have been thrilled to discover. A relationship with the God of the universe. A relationship of trust that is like that of children with a father. A deep security in this crazy world because we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Because God is love. Thirdly and lastly, the third revolutionary truth, I bet you can guess it, <laughs> is that God is fellowship. God is fellowship, and this is especially attributed to the person of the Spirit. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what's so revolutionary about this? Friends, it means that you are never, ever alone. Ever. As outlandish as it sounds, you have been brought into the fellowship of the Trinity because a member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out into your heart. 
You've been brought into the dance of the Trinity. This means that wherever you go, God goes with you. He is with you, even to the end of the age. We sang it over and over earlier, be not afraid. Where you go, there I am with you. The Spirit is always with you as your comforter, your advocate, your guide. Unless you think this is just an individual thing with you and the Spirit, furthermore, the fellowship of the Spirit is meant to be experienced within the fellowship of his body, the church. The, the Greek word for fellowship in this, in, that ta in this text, in that passage, is koinonia. You may have heard that word. It means communion, or the sharing of a common life, which is a word that is most often associated with the church. See, the Spirit is building a community, a family, that is not based on physical or ethnic or relational descent. He binds together a people that might not have anything else in common outside of their common faith. This is what the Spirit do, is doing to create fellowship. He turns disparate peoples into a united body. As revolutionary as it was for the Apostle Paul in the first century to write, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine what a powerful witness it was in the, in the ancient world when Jews and Gentiles, these former enemies, are communing with one another around the Lord's table? Friends, what a powerful witness it could be to the world today. When people who should be divided are one in Christ and have fellowship with one another. This, this is the mystery of the gospel revealed. Friends, what a comfort to know that wherever you go in this world, you have family. What a treasure to know that in this crazy and lonely and isolating world, that you are never alone. Because you have the fellowship of the Spirit through the fellowship of His body, the church. Y'all know the church is a mess, right? Everywhere. The church in Corinth was, by the way. Just read the whole letter, both of them. They were messed up. They were divided over their favorite preachers. They were divided over hot-button issues. Like it sound familiar to anybody? Even in his closing greeting, Paul has to urge them to keep seeking restoration, to comfort one another, to, to agree with one another, to live in peace. But friends, the messiness of the church is not the final word. The final word is that she is the bride of Christ. She is the body of Christ. She is the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit builds a fellowship like no other. So, brothers and sisters, I, run, I return to the question of the hour. Why on earth would anyone be a Christian today? It's costly. Jesus implores us to consider the cost of discipleship. Remember Luke 14, where he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What makes Christianity worth it, despite the cost? I believe the answer throughout history has been communion with God. Communion 
with the triune God. To treasure Christ, because he is full of grace. To trust your Father in heaven, because he is full of love. To share in the spirit who enables true fellowship. Friends, that's it. That is why countless Christians have concluded with the Apostle Paul, I count everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Friends, may it be the same. May the same be true for you as well. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, in our times, in our place, in our age, Lord, we consider what it means to follow you, what it costs to follow you. But Lord, first we consider what it costs for you to rescue us. Father, thank you for your love, that you would give up the thing most precious to you, your only son. Jesus, thank you that you would come down and embody to us the very grace that we needed to be able to survive the dumb things we have done, our guilt and our shame. Thank you, Spirit, that you have come down to take up residence in us and to create a community, a body of fellowship. Lord, thank you that you have done for us what we so desperately craved. And I pray, Lord, that we would count the costs, that we would count everything else as a loss for the surpassing greatness, the worth of having communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a treasure. I pray that we would treasure this always, every day of our life. And we would continue to build that tower. And you would, you would actually build it into completion. For you who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. We pray in the name of Christ.